Would you uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1? Be there this morning. Let's start by talking about the letter to the Hebrews. Um, it's an interesting letter. It's an interesting book in the Bible. Um, it's mainly interesting because we don't know exactly who wrote it, right? Um, there's theories. There's a lot of different theories about who wrote it, uh, where it came from, all those things. But we really have no way of knowing for sure. There's nothing in the text that actually gives us um, a definite answer on who wrote this. And so... Other uh, New Testament letters, as you guys are familiar with, they start by opening up with like Paul, an apostle, or Peter, and they identify themselves. This one doesn't do that. It just gets right into it. And so, um, I tend to, out of all the theories, I tend to, to lean towards uh, this book being given uh, by God through Paul, but I don't think that Paul wrote it as a letter. Um, and just real quick, there's three, three kind of reasons for that. Uh, the first is that the author doesn't identify himself, and that was what Paul always did. He always wrote, you know, Paul, an apostle, appointed by God to the church at, right? That was kind of his, his signature thing. Um, this theology in here, I think, is clearly Paul, but he doesn't identify himself, so I, I don't think that it's a letter written by Paul. Uh, the second thing is that there's no greeting to the audience, right? He doesn't start by saying to, like, to the church at Ephesus, or to the church at Philippi, or to the churches in Galatia. He doesn't do that. He just right into the message. So, not, not very letter-like. The third thing is that, I think, in the book of Hebrews, there's a real tone of urgency, something that you'd expect when you're hearing a sermon. Uh, a speaker trying to bring his audience to a point, to a decision, trying to get them um, from point A to point B, and there's, a, there's an urgency. Uh, while other New Testament letters have urgency, like the letter to the then he gets right into it, and he says, I can't believe that you guys are abandoning the gospel, right? So, but even then, he still identifies himself and identifies his audience. So those are kind of the three reasons why I tend to lean more towards this not being a letter that was written, but more of a, a sermon that was preached. But again, that's just um, a theory, so we don't know for sure. But regardless of if this was a letter that was written or a sermon that was preached, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as Second Timothy says. And so, for this to be the most profitable for us, we must understand it in its historical context. So, let's talk about that. Um, the book of Hebrews is a message that was given to Hebrew Christians that were tempted to go back to Judaism. This is found in chapter 2 where the author says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how then will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Also in chapter ten thirty nine says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of our soul. So in both these, you can see that the author is trying to communicate that there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no escape left for those who neglect this great salvation from, from Christ. And the only thing there is to shrink back to, according to the author, is destruction. And so his argument throughout the book is that there's nothing to go back to. Jesus is not only greater than the Old Testament ceremonial worship that they were used to, but he's the fulfillment of it and therefore the end of it. He brought it to an end. 
And so our Hebrew brothers and sisters in the past were tempted to leave Christ and return to what was familiar to them, right? Return to what was historic and return to that which was accepted. So think with me for a moment. Imagine yourself being a Jewish man or woman. You were raised in a family of Jews. You were taught Jewish religion your entire life. You were familiar with the temple worship and the feast days. You kept the seventh-day Sabbath. You kept the dietary restrictions. And you listened to and esteemed Jewish religious leaders. Then one day, you hear the gospel preached. You hear about Jesus, who said he's the king of the Jews. The one who made himself equal with God. The one who abolished the ceremonial law. The one who threw out dietary restrictions. The one who opposed the religious leaders. The one who changed the Sabbath from, uh, from the last day to the first day by his resurrection. The one who seemed to turn everything upside down. And then he said, you need to leave everything and follow me. So can you imagine how difficult that would be? Not only initially to act upon your infantile faith and to leave everything that you've ever known, but then having the constant pressure from your Jewish friends and family to come back to the old way. It must have been a constant temptation for those Christians. And so the author of the book of Hebrews either sits down to write or stands up to preach, depending on what we believe about it, um, to these Hebrew Christians in order to convince them not to go back and to encourage them to run after Christ. And so the theme of this book can be summarized in this statement. Jesus is greater. The polemic that the author used is to contrast the old way of doing things with Jesus and to demonstrate that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. He's the greater prophet. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater sacrifice. Jesus in all things is greater. And so once we see this historical context, the original context, then we can start drawing parallels to our context today. And this is one of the reasons why I chose this book to preach from. While we're not Hebrew Christians in the first century, (laughs) getting tempted to return to Judaism... We are Christians who live in a very secular culture. We live in one of the most openly hostile areas of a country that's mostly hostile to the gospel. To live in the Seattle area and to be a genuine Christian who actually believes in, speaks about, and lives in light of the teachings of our Lord is to be in a very, very small minority. And assuming that we, have un- we all have unconverted coworkers and family members and people that we interact with, surrounding us can lead us to a temptation to drift away from Christ. Perhaps you're tempted to leave Jesus in favor of something that's more familiar and comfortable. Something that's popular and accepted by those around you. Perhaps the love of money is slowly pulling you away from Christ. Are you tempted to build your own kingdom instead of giving your life to build God's kingdom? Is your desire for the things of this world suffocating your desire for heavenly things? Whatever your temptations may be, we all have this in common with the audience of the book of Hebrews. We're constantly being tempted to drift away. And so the author begins this book by giving one of the most Christ-exalting statements in the whole New Testament. He begins by lifting up the spiritual eyes of these Hebrew Christians to behold the glory of Christ. 
It seems to me that the author was persuaded in his own mind that the solution for these tempted Christians was to be captivated by the glory and majesty of Jesus. By opening up this way, he was admonishing them to stir up their affections for the Messiah by renewing their understanding of exactly who he is. So knowing that we will all face difficulty and temptation, it's important to behold Jesus in the Scriptures and to allow your heart to be captivated by his glory. And so please join me this morning in lifting our hearts up towards the King of Glory and taking hold of the truths we're about to read about by faith. And so let's begin by reading uh, verse 1 and then half of verse 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So the author begins by contrasting prior revelation to the final revelation. Or in other words, Old Testament revelation with New Testament revelation. It's important to notice, first, that the, con- the contrast that he's making is not a contrast of origin, right? God is the giver of both the previous revelation to the fathers as well as the revelation to us in his Son. Like we said before, all Scripture is inspired by God. So there's a fundamental unity between these two periods of revelation. The Old Testament and the New Testament revelation have a fundamental unity in that God is the author of both. And so the, the contrast the author is making is, is one of details, not substance. Or he's pointing out the diversity within the unity, if you will. And so, contrary to what a prominent uh, evangelical leader teaches, we should not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to stay hitched to that. <laughs> so... Um, No, both Old Testament and New Testament revelation are inspired by God and profitable to God's people at all times. So, if you look with me at the text, the author contrasts the Old and New Testament revelation in four ways. First is the manner in which the revelation is given. In reference to the Old Testament, it says God spoke in many portions and in many ways. The Old Testament revelation was given through men who God chose to speak through and this was done over a long period of time. Some prophets revealed more than others and, and they communicated in different ways. For example, some prophets merely spoke verbally to God's people and some wrote down the revelation. So there's different ways of God communicating. This long, drawn-out process of communicating in increments through a plurality of prophets is contrasted with the revelation in these last days that was fully realized in one man. Jesus brought us God's final revelation all at once. It was explained and expressed Christ upon by the apostles and prophets, but it was all brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The second contrast is the time in which the revelation was, revelations were given. The author divides the timeline of human history into two periods. God spoke to the fathers long ago, and he spoke to us in these last days. So when it comes to how God speaks and interacts with his people, 
through Revelation, there's only two ways. Before Christ, he spoke at many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, and notice the word last, he has, past tense, spoken to us in his Son. The fact that the author places this revelation in the last days and then speaks about it in the past tense means that Jesus Christ is the final revelation from God. And so to argue that new revelation is given today is to deny the author's point that Jesus is the greatest revelation. The third contrast that we see is the people to whom the revelation was given. God spoke to the fathers, or the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and he spoke to us, or the church in the New Testament. The fact that Jesus came as God's final revelation to the church, that the final revelation of the church that fulfilled all the other Old Testament revelation and revealed all the mysteries that were hidden to those saints makes Jesus the greatest revelation. Remember our theme, Jesus is greater. The fourth contrast, and this largely this is the main contrast and it largely encompasses the first, first three, is the persons through whom the revelations were given. So, think about this for a second. The Old Testament saints, okay, the Old Testament believers, um, to them the prophets were esteemed very, very highly. They were literally God's chosen messengers. And to be a prophet was to be hand-selected by God to bring His Word to His people. I'm going to read um, from Jeremiah chapter 1, um, where God... He's, he's talking to God about his calling as a prophet. And, and listen to what he says. Starting at verse 4. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But God said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so... This demonstrates the high calling of a prophet, right? They were chosen, hand-selected by God, and then given the very words of God to deliver to God's people. So when we consider this high calling, it explains the point of the author's contrast, right? Think about it. He's appealing to the authority and trustworthiness of the prophet's witness about God, and then he's contrasting that with the witness given through God's own Son. So, if we should accept the revelation that was given through sinners that were saved by grace and then chosen to speak for God, how much more should we accept the revelation given through God's own Son that had been existing with Him from all eternity? And so the argument of this entire contrast is that the revelation that's given in Jesus is greater than the revelation given beforehand because of the one who gave it, right? Jesus makes it greater because Jesus is the greatest and final revelation given from God. 
Let's read the rest of uh, verse 2. It says, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Okay, so God, what does it mean that God made Christ heir of all things? This means that Christ has been given power and authority over all things. All things are subject to him as Lord. He's free to give and to take away as he pleases. And, and this idea is, is seen in, uh, in Psalm 2. Toby preached on this a, a little while ago. Um, it says, this is the, God the Father speaking to God the Son, and he says, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus also says explicitly in Matthew 28, as he's given the Great Commission, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The fact that he had authority over all things, but also that he reserved the right to tell them to go. Right? He could command all creation as he pleased. And so Jesus, as the heir of all things, possesses and rules over all things as Lord. The next portion says that God made the world through Jesus. This demonstrates the eternality of Jesus. Right? There's many, many cults, such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, that are refuted by this truth. We see this idea in John 1 and Colossians 1, as well as in our text here in Hebrews 1, that Jesus was not only present during the creation of all things, but he was also active in creation itself. The world was made through Jesus, and then the Gospel of John <clears throat> and Colossians say the world was made by Jesus. And so, Trinitarian uh, creation that Jesus was undoubtedly involved in. And so, Jesus is not the first and greatest creation of Jehovah, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. And Jesus is not one of the spirit children of Heavenly Father and one of his spirit wives, as the Mormons teach. No, Jesus is the creator of all things. All things. He's the second person of the Trinity who has existed from all eternity. And this, this uh, beautiful truth brings us to our next point. It also proves that point. <laughs> so verse 3. Let's look at verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This verse caused me a lot of trouble while I was writing my sermon because there's so many things in here that I wanted to talk about and my sermon was a lot, uh, a lot longer and I had to chop it, chop it down. So <laughs> we're going we're gonna to try to cover it as, as much as we can, but there's, there's a lot. This would be a very, very good study, I think, um, personal study, but we're, we're going to talk about this as much as we can. So... Let's start with Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. So Jesus So Jesus is God in human flesh. And as God in human flesh, he shines forth the glory of God. We see all the glorious characteristics of God found in Jesus Christ. 
God's love and His mercy and His compassion and His kindness, His goodness, His justice, His righteousness, His wrath, His wisdom, His power, all those things and much more are all found in Jesus. He shines forth the glory of God to God's creation. And He does that in the person of Christ. The second part of this is linked to that. Um, Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. So, um, most I don't know if most of you guys have the New American Standard. That's what I'm um, preaching from. And uh, other, other uh, versions use a different word, but the NASB uh, translates... Uh, uh, the NASB says... He's a representation. And the word representation, as well as the other um, words in the English translations, I don't think does justice to what uh, the word is behind it in the Greek. Um, the word in the Greek is character. Uh, and uh, this might sound a little bit familiar because it's the uh, word that we get our English word character from. But this word uh, had a particular meaning in the first century. Um, a, char- a character was a stamp that was used to press images upon coins sometimes, but mainly it was to press images upon a wax seal. And so typically what you'd have is people in positions of power would use uh, the idea of a, a character to verify that a document had come from them. And so what they would have is they'd have a signet ring that had a unique image on it that no one else possessed. It was unique to them alone. And so when they would send a letter out that had, you know, maybe it was a general and he was giving orders or something like that, something that needed to be verified that it was actually coming from this person, they would write a document. Then when they sealed it, they would put wax on the seal and they would press their image um, into the wax, giving it the image upon their, uh, that was found on their, their ring. And so when the letter would arrive to its recipients, they would know that as long as the seal wasn't broken or tampered with, um, that whatever was inside the document came from that person. And so the fact that Jesus here is referred to uh, the character of God, of God's nature, says a lot about who Jesus is. Think about it. If, 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 if Jesus is the exact image of the nature of God, then he cannot be a created being. Because God, by very nature, is not created. He's the uncreated one. If Jesus is the exact image of the nature of the eternal creator of the universe, what does that make Jesus? The eternal creator of the universe. He shares his nature with the Father. Jesus possesses the very nature of God. Yet, as we've seen in our text, he's been distinguished uh, there's been the authors distinguish what Christians believe in the Trinity. The scriptures over and over again reveal to us that there's only one God, but then it refers to three persons as God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all referred to as God, yet the scriptures over and over again says that there's only one God. And so the doctrine of the Trinity confesses the biblical teaching that there's one God, one being of God that's revealed in three distinct persons. There are three persons within the being of God who operate in different economic functions, but are all God according to their very nature. So we have one being and three persons. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into that, and that's not really what we're talking about. But 
eventually I'd like to talk more about that in a Sunday school or a night service or something. But um, yeah, Jesus uh, possesses the very nature of God. Um, moving on, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of it. What does that mean? So he literally is holding all things together at this very moment, right now. All things. There's not one stray molecule in the entire universe. And, and so the fact that we're, 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 I'm standing here, you guys are sitting there, and, and our bodies are continuing to function, the fact that we can see, see and hear and taste and, and all the things, all, all the functions that our bodies are doing, breathing, all the things we're doing right now, this very moment, is because of Jesus. Everything in the universe is kept from flying off into chaos or just ceasing to exist altogether just because Jesus wills it to be so. And this has major implications, some of which we're going to talk through and, and, and think about when we explore the next verse, which will be the main focus of our, our time uh, this morning. So, our text now shifts in the middle of verse 3 from who Jesus is to what Jesus has done. Okay, so uh, read with me in verse 3. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so I want to take this kind of in two parts. Uh, First, um, when he had made purification for sins. So Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, came to earth to live in perfect obedience to God's law and then die the death of a transgressor of that very law which he kept in the place of all those who would repent and believe in him. Hebrews 10, 10 10-14 says this, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. And by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, the author points out how the Old Testament priests had to make continual offerings over and over and over and over again, right? Time after time. But it was to no avail because the blood of bulls and goats, as um, our scriptures say, can never take away sins. They can never atone for sins, right? These were merely a shadow pointing towards the greater high priest and the greater sacrifice who would make the greatest sacrifice ever, but it wasn't a sacrifice of animals, it was a sacrifice of himself to take away the sins of his people. His one offering is a perfect offering that fully saves the sinner. And so there's not a continual sacrifice being offered by Jesus, as the Catholics would say in the Mass. No, the one sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient and perfect for all of those for whom it was made. And this is what makes Jesus the greater sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice. And so it's helpful for us to think through the implications of what we've 
said before in relation to Jesus being the greater sacrifice. Who was this one that sacrificed himself, right? Who's this Jesus? Um, As we saw before, Jesus is the heir of all things, right? He's the one that rules over all things, and he has the ability to do with it whatever, whatever he wants to do, whatever he wishes. And he's not obligated in any way to do anything that he does not desire to do. He has complete control and authority over all things. And so the sovereign of all things decided to enter into humanity through the Incarnation. He willingly subjected himself to the trials and temptations common to human beings. He chose to veil himself in human flesh to experience hunger and pain and exhaustion. He chose to dwell among the rebels whom he had the ability and the right to dispose of in an instant. The king came to give himself as a ransom for his rebellious subjects. We also saw that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Think about the implications of this. This means that Jesus, as the greater sacrifice, held all things together while he was making his sacrifice. He allowed the minds of the religious leaders to devise their wicked plan to convict him in a false trial. He kept the hearts of the Roman soldiers beating while they knelt before him and mocked. He supplied growth to the muscles of the Roman soldier who would eventually strip him naked, tie him to a post, and whip him severely. He gave good soil and water to the tree that would grow up and eventually be chopped down and assembled into a cross and be soaked with his blood. He gave the breath to the Roman soldiers who mocked him while his flesh was hung upon the cross. This is Jesus, brothers and sisters. This is our Savior. The creator and sustainer of all things came and suffered in the hands of his creation in order to save it. However, (laughs) the beatings, the mocking, and the, the crucifixion paled in comparison to the suffering he had to endure as he bore the full weight of God's wrath toward sin. And so, Jesus, after living the perfect life in the place of his people in order to give them a perfect righteousness, he had to also die in their place to remove their sins from them. This is the active and passive obedience of Jesus. He actively lived a perfect life on our behalf, and then he passively endured our sins upon the cross. And so, all the sins of God's people were punished in the death of Jesus. He drank the cup of God's wrath upon the cross in order to reconcile sinners like you and I to himself. And so, I must point out here that Jesus is not only the greatest sacrifice, but he's the only sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice that could, be, that could ever reconcile a sinner back to God. All of us, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We, we've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve infinite punishment for sinning against an infinite God. 
And our sins must be paid for. They will indeed be paid for. It's not a question of if. It's a question of how. And there's only two ways that this can happen. Either Jesus bore your sins upon the cross and paid your debt, or you will pay for your sins when you die. And so please hear me. And I'm not saying this because I don't love you guys. I'm saying this because I do, and it would be the most hateful thing for me to let anyone leave this room and think that there's any hope outside of Jesus Christ. And so if you've not repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, the full weight of God's wrath burns against you. There's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. There's none. He's the only way to the Father, and He's the only one who can atone for sins. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. He also says, no one can come to the Father except by me. And so please, if you have not repented and believed in him, do it. Do it today. Don't harden your heart toward God. God graciously has brought you here providentially to hear this message. And so be reconciled to him. The book of Acts says he commands all men everywhere to repent. And he says to the prophet Isaiah, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So Jesus has made purification for sins. He's made atonement for sins. Next, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's two points I'd like to make about this. The first is the idea of sitting down. So in the, in the Jewish mind, sitting down was a sign of completion, right? The fact that Jesus sat down after making purification for sins communicates to us that his sacrifice is complete. Now, I just gave you the bad news about God's wrath and its need to be satisfied, but this is the good news for all who believe. Jesus sat down because he paid our debt in full. There's no more wrath that's left for you. And so if you believe, if you're in Christ, when you're tempted to think that God is mad at you, just remember that Jesus is sitting down. He paid your debt in full. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. There's nothing to add to it, and there's no way to take away from it. Jesus is sitting down because his sacrifice removed all of God's wrath towards you. All of it. There's no wrath left for you because Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner. And that is the good news, isn't it? The second thing that I'd like to point out is that Jesus, so while he declared by sitting down that his sacrifice for sins was complete, he also took on a new role by sitting down. Um, and that role is uh, on our behalf. From the time that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high to this very day and then on until the end of time, Jesus is interceding for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34 says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. And so Jesus is a constant testimony before the Father that the sins of his people have been removed from them. 
He is the sinner's living verdict of innocence that was bought through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the impenetrable wall that's shielding, shielding the Christian from condemnation and God's wrath. And he remains the surety of our salvation as our intercessor. He intercedes for us to the Father on our behalf. We should take great comfort in that. And so in summary, Jesus is the greatest revelation. He has authority over all things. He created all things. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He gave himself as the greatest sacrifice, and he ever lives to make intercession on behalf of his people. So brothers and sisters, this is Jesus. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. This is our King. This is why we're here to worship, right? This is who we worship. And so the, the, the pressing question, I think the most pressing question, I think, would be, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is God incarnate? Do you believe that he created the world? Do you believe that his sacrifice is the only thing that can purify your sins? Do you believe that he has removed all of your sins and ever lives to make intercession on your behalf? It's imperative that we pay close attention to what we believe about God. And not to pick on the Mormons too much, but they use words like Jesus, God, salvation, heaven, scripture, all these things, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses do it too. Um, But when you study what they mean by that, when you ask them what they mean by that, it's completely different than what we believe and what what the Bible teaches. And so we must allow the Word of God, the Scriptures, to inform what we believe about God. The Scriptures have to be our foundation. The second question is, have you taken hold of Christ's sacrifice by faith? It's one thing to give intellectual assent to Christ's person and sacrifice. It's another thing to grasp these truths by faith, right? We can, we can say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, and I, I believe that. That's, that's fine, that's cool. But have you grasped these by faith? Is, it, it, do you possess Christ's righteousness? Is this something that you believe in the depths of your heart, sincerely? Because this isn't about checking theological boxes or having a neat, tidy theological system. This is about the eternal state of our souls. Because what you believe about Jesus, and this is without exaggeration, is literally the difference between heaven and hell. The third and final question that I have is, what will you do with these truths? We all have to ask ourselves this. If you're feeling yourself drift away from the Lord, or if you're distracted by other things, give yourself over to meditating on these truths. Spend time gazing upon the glory of Christ revealed to us in the Scriptures. Delight yourself in the Lord. Taste and see that He is good. Because the Christian life is hard. It will be filled with many difficulties. You'll be faced with external struggles from those around you who oppose you. You'll also have painful circumstances that God brings into your life that are for your ultimate good, but are still hard to press through in the moment. You'll have the internal struggles of battling with your own sin while you're trying to live a godly life. You'll have to fight through this life. 
We all will have to fight. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, right? The Christian life is a fight, it's a struggle. And so we'll have to continually fight against the things that are dangerous to our souls. But in order to endure all these things that we will surely all face, we all must have a high view of Jesus. We have to. We have to have a high view of Jesus. He must be our prize. He must be what we desire above all else. And so by beholding His glory, we will be motivated to run after Him. Just like how when a child wants to learn how to play an instrument, you don't sit him down in, in, in front of a piano and just say, or here's all the rules. That doesn't motivate them to want to learn the piano. What motivates them is to go to a, a to, to listen to a piano being played beautifully. And that captivates them and it makes them work through the hard things. It's the same thing with Jesus. We need to be captivated by Him and His beauty. And then we'll be able to endure all the things that we face in this life. And so I want to close by reading the authors of the book of Hebrews prescription to the Hebrews um, to follow in the faith of those who had come before them. And it's found in, in chapter 12. He says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the, at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all the good gifts that you've given us, especially Jesus and his great sacrifice. I pray that you'd give us a uh, strong faith in that sacrifice and that we would be, our hearts would be captivated by the beauty of it and that we would be motivated to, to run the race that's set before us and to fight the good fight of faith and that we would war against those things that would pull us away and make us uh, tempted to drift and that we would lay a hold of Christ by faith and that he would be our most prized possession. And so I thank you for this church and I thank you for um, scriptures and I thank you for your son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take me deeper.